wonderful to be with you this morning. As Adam had mentioned, we'll be in Galatians chapter 6 this morning, and so if you would go ahead and open up your Bibles to that text, Galatians chapter 6. It is always wonderful to be able to gather uh, to worship God together in spirit and in truth, and I think especially uh, today it is, as we have had several out due to various illnesses, and we see several back with us. We want you to know uh, just how much we missed you and how much we're encouraged that you're back again with us. It's kind of funny that uh, some of those who were out, uh, Bev and Carl, were the only ones in the other class, and so they were class warriors uh, this morning. They did all the comments and all the talking, and they made some excellent comments. Uh, appreciate them, and so thankful they're back as well as, as well as a number of us. There are others that aren't here still, though, and so let's keep them in our prayers, and, and we hope that they'll be able to uh, overcome their struggles of the flesh and get back before um, too long. Galatians chapter 6, I think we're very familiar with verse 2, and I will just say very quickly that Adam's song fits right in line with this lesson, and it is indeed a beautiful life if we are fulfilling the commands of God that we see here in Galatians chapter 6. We're especially familiar with verse 2 where the Apostle Paul writes to these brethren, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This epistle is written to a people that were confronted by false teaching, but while that's the main thrust of this epistle, similar to Romans combating the false teaching of the Judaizers, false doctrine always leads to other problems. It's not the only problem, and there's no insignificant false teaching, but if there's false teaching, there will be practices which are ungodly, and Part of those ungodly practices included a, uh, I guess, a, an environment of competition among brethren, if you will. And the end of chapter 5 and verse 26, it talks about how we shouldn't become conceited in provoking one another and envying one another. And really the exact opposite of that would be helping one another in humility. And so Galatians 6 really fits perfectly in with this as we seek to stand for truth and overcome errors that we're confronted with. We help each other get to heaven by bearing each other's burdens. And in doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. When we read Galatians 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, what are the first things that come to our mind? I think that they'd all be similar. We think about how we might be struck with some illness of the flesh like we're going through in this congregation. We might think about a, a loss of a family member or a friend, someone close to us. Just some hard time we're going through. Maybe it has to do with our, our jobs. Maybe we ourselves or someone else we know in this congregation at one time lost their jobs and we need to help them through this. I think all of those kinds of things and more that obviously the list is too long to to, to mention and enumerate in detail, has to do with bearing each other's burdens. We, we are a spiritual family, and we are seeking to live spiritual lives to get to a spiritual eternal dwelling place in heaven with God. But all of that is still in the context of us inhabiting a physical body. And so the physical plights of this life will obviously affect our spiritual life and if we're going through some physical burdens, we need to help each other bear that lest we are taken advantage of by Satan and his devices, which include 
exploiting those weaknesses, exploiting those troubles. We need to help each other get through them. And we need to never minimize them. And that's a struggle I think we can have from time to time as we increase in spiritual maturity and our mind or minds are always focused on the spiritual. What is right doctrinally? What is right morally? What, what are we to do to, to let Christ live in us? We, we can never get to a point where we minimize some of the physical things that we go through. And really, true spiritual maturity will reach the place where it understands how those physical things can be a great toll on us spiritually. But while all that's good and it's proper and we need to think about that and bear each other's burdens in that way, I want to impress you with the context of Galatians 6, which shows what is, no doubt, the greatest burden each and every one of us will face, and that each and every one of us needs to help each other bear when it is certainly pertinent in the case. Consider the call to bear one another's burdens. In verse 2, we see that call, we see that responsibility but it is preceded by the specific burden-bearing of the text. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so the specific burden-bearing of Galatians 6, I want to impress you with, is over, one overtaken in a trespass, and a spiritual person, as the text describes him, will help him to be restored, and he would do so in a spirit of gentleness with self-consideration, lest he would fall prey to Satan's devices at that time. I want us to notice a contrast here between one who is spiritual and one who is overtaken in any trespass. One who is obviously overtaken in a trespass is an individual who, though he is a child of God, is found to be in sin, and therefore he is not right with God. I believe that helps us to begin understanding who this spiritual person is and therefore who this is an obligation for to bear one another's burdens, to restore the one overtaken in a trespass. The spiritual one does not just start here in chapter 6, but it's a context that continues on from chapter 5. As I indicated, Galatians was written to a people who are dealing with false teaching from Judaizing people. And so there was this contrast between the old law and the new law that the Apostle Paul was having to address. And he explains in part in verse 4 of Galatians 5 that if you attempt to be justified by the perfect keeping of the law of Moses, then you estrange yourself from the Christ who died to set you free from sin. You estrange yourself from the one sacrifice the old law never offered that could make you free from sin and therefore you fall from grace. And we need to understand that's why someone falls from grace when they turn back to the law of Moses. They don't fall from grace because all of a sudden they have this false view of what justification is and, and living by faith, keeping the commandments of God. That's how the people under the Old Testament were justified. Not by perfect keeping of the law, but by keeping what law they were under by faith and trusting in God's grace and in the messianic promises that were to come. Law is never the problem. And that's not the problem Paul's addressing here. He talks about the law of Christ in verse 2 of Galatians 6. And we understand by that that we are still under law today. The difference is it has the provision of grace, where the old law only looked forward to the provision of grace. The reason one falls from grace when they attempt to be justified by the law of Moses 
is that they turn back to a system that does not have that sacrifice. And so they render themselves without hope. But with that being said, there was the need to address another problem that would come about. There's the problem of of this self-righteousness and attaining to righteousness through perfection that some claimed they could do and they were boasting in the flesh in that way. And then there would be the flip side. If, If you take hold of this liberty, there are other dangers that you need to be aware of. So he says in verse 13, You brethren have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I believe that's primarily the problem we deal with today. Most people who claim to be Christians would never ever suggest that they can merit their salvation by perfect works. But what too many do, even in the Lord's church, and we've got to watch out for the denominational and Calvinistic influences that creep in, what too many do is go the opposite direction and suggest this liberty means I can do whatever I want without consequence. And that includes anything that comes at the expense of my brethren. He says, do not delude yourselves into thinking that. You're still under law, which is where we get verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so you are freed from this yoke of bondage that none of us could ever bear as described in Acts the 15th chapter when they were dealing with Judaizing teachers. And you are free. But that freedom is not freedom from responsibility. It's not freedom from law. It's not freedom from the need to abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. It's a freedom from sin which empowers you by the grace of God to live that pure life. And so you really undo everything Christ is trying to do, everything God is trying to produce in us, if you take this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. It's your escape from the flesh. That's why it's liberty. You grapple with this pull between the lust of the flesh and and what the Spirit dictates. and, And that pull is left in revelation by design to stress to you that you ought not do the things that you wish. The reason why it's a pull is because you know that while you might want to do it, it's wrong because of what the Spirit says. And by no means does God in any way and in any form suggest that it's okay to submit to that urge. We always must submit to the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. That's the spiritual one of Galatians 6 and in verse 1. And we see it in the previous verses of that chapter in verse 24. They who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that look like? Put away those things enumerated in verses 19 through 21. And there are other things that are like them that are not mentioned. We know that. That's not the exclusive list. We've crucified that. We don't live that way anymore. And if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. We don't just make a false claim that we are living according to the Spirit's teaching. We are practicing what we preach. We're walking the walk and we're talking the talk. And so the spiritual person in Galatians 6.1 is that one who is spiritually minded and is verified to be so as he crucifies his desires of the flesh and walks according to the Spirit's teaching. Romans the 8th chapter has a lot of parallels that might benefit you in your personal study. 
And so the conflict in Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 1 is this brother who is walking according to the Spirit's teaching. He's faithful. He's, he is currently walking in the light. He's not guilty of sin. He is right with God. And he sees a brother overtaken in a trespass. I want to make this very clear. The spiritual person is not an elder. It's not a preacher. It's not a deacon. It's not a man versus a woman or a child. It is a faithful Christian. Shouldn't that be all of us? This responsibility falls on each and every one of us. When we see a brother or sister who is overtaken in a trespass, we've got to move to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. We often stress that he's overtaken, and and there's a good reason for that. It's not a matter of rebellion, but even with rebellion, we would want to restore that person. This in no way minimizes the sin. It is in no way less severe that they were overtaken or perhaps surprised in trespass. The fact is, sin will just uh, take us away from our God, divide us from Him. It will cause us to die spiritually. And that person must be addressed. That person must be restored. And that falls on me. It falls on Billy Davis and Billy Locke and the other two elders. It falls on everyone that is in this place. If we see someone in sin, it is our obligation to do something about it and to restore them. This is going to happen through, in the primary way, teaching them. Now, they may already know, but the Word of God is powerful for a reason. Don't just take it for granted that they would know what they're doing is wrong and why it's wrong. They need to be convinced and rebuked by this infallible message in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and righteousness. That's how we should use it. In the fourth chapter in verse 2, that's what Paul encourages Timothy to do, to preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season. What does preaching look like? It's not a mere educational lecture. It's convincing and rebuking and exhorting, but with all long suffering and teaching. That's not just our job as evangelists or the elders' job as the shepherds, though we may say it is primarily their job. They have the greatest burden as they shepherd the flock, but it's all of our jobs to restore those brethren who are overtaken in a trespass. And in doing so, he says, you are bearing one another's burdens. That's the greatest burden we could ever have that we need to bear is the burden of sin. And when we help each other bear our burdens, not not by suggesting it's okay that you continue in this, you, you just need to do better in this area or that area. Bearing their burden of sin is rebuking them for their sin, is correcting their sin, is pleading with them to stop sinning and to lead a pure life as you submit to the Spirit's teaching. That's bearing burdens. You know what we fulfill when we do that? The law of Christ. In chapter 5 and verse 14, he mentioned that law, at least in part. All the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls it the royal law. It transcends. It's, it's royal in itself as it covers so many facets of the law. Jesus mentioned in John 13 and verse 34 to His disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And it's new in regard to the example that we follow in that love, and it's His sacrifice. Never has there ever been a greater example than the sacrifice of Jesus. And based on that sacrifice, you love each other in the same manner. That makes it new. Makes it more powerful. Makes it a greater responsibility. That's the law of Christ, to love each other. 
And that is the greatest way we express that love in holding each other accountable spiritually and helping each other get to heaven. All these other burdens we help each other bear, that's an act of love and that is important. I don't want to minimize that. But sometimes we, we emphasize the lesser to the neglect of the greater. We, we have no problem cooking a meal for someone who's going through some kind of physical adversity. But if we see them in sin, we, we don't want to touch that. We're too scared to do that. But that's the greatest act of burden bearing that we're given. And it's, a, it's an act of love. And we need to understand that. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, the Apostle Peter says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Why? For love will cover a multitude of sins. How does love cover a multitude of sins? Someone who doesn't know their Bible may say, Well, love will cover it up so no one else sees. That's not what it means. To cover is the same as Jesus' blood covers our sins. It takes care of the problem. It, it does what is necessary. In the case of Jesus' blood, it washes them away. They're forgiven. They're dealt with. His death was necessary to satisfy God's wrath. And so they weren't just looked over or swept under the rug. They were covered in the sense of addressed. Notice the parallel to James 5 and verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4 and verse 8 says, In doing that, you express the greatest act of love you could to your brother. You know, everything else that comes along with correcting sin falls into this category of bearing each other's burdens. Recently, the men on Friday mornings finished a study of church discipline, a very difficult study, a study which a lot of people would be very uncomfortable with, and many churches don't practice. But the very act of discipline, from the initial teaching to the correction and rebuke and exhortation to the withdrawal of one who is not repenting of their sins and is in rebellion, it's all an act of love. It's all an act of bearing each other's burdens. And so when we talk about the need for accountability, the need for transparency among each other, confess sins to one another and let each other know what we're dealing with and what we're struggling with, all of these things fall under this category. And I think if we view them in that way, we'll have a greater appreciation for them. And we won't say things like, it's none of your business. But we'll realize that's a request of love to know, what can I do to help you spiritually? And when I am going through something, I might be more inclined to confess that to someone, to receive that help, because that's all about the law of Christ. But I want us to notice that he contrasts that with what we don't do. But before we get to verses 3 and 4, notice something that we saw in verse 1. The, the manner or the spirit, the disposition, the attitude in which this spiritual person would bear that one's burdens in a spirit of gentleness. And that's, that's why he's spiritual, because gentleness is a part of the fruit of the Spirit that he mentioned in verse 23. It's the same Greek word. And that's one among many other things that show that he's walking according to the Spirit's teaching, but that would especially be pertinent according to the inspired writings of Paul in this charge to bear one another's burdens. You do it in a spirit of gentleness. We often think of this idea of gentleness as merely mildness. You, you, you be sweet to them. And, and there's going to be some things that, that are, are certainly true in that regard when we address sin in an individual's life. We don't immediately have to bring the hammer down on them and make them feel absolutely terrible. You know the Scripture is going to make them feel bad enough. And we can speak the Scripture to them in a very gentle fashion. 
But I think even more than that, we have to understand what this Greek word proutes means. It's a very deep word, very, very often difficult to describe, and it's because it's multifaceted. It's very deep. Martin Gingrich, though, I think gives a very good definition that falls right in line with this context. Gentleness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And so gentleness, humility, and courtesy, and considerateness, and meekness, they're really the product of that very basic understanding of the word. It's, it's humility, but it's humility through a self-reflection and unworthiness and a realization of your own past struggles and your own past sins. And so you restore that one in a spirit of gentleness, and that will allow you to fulfill that other part considering yourself lest you be tempted. And so it's not necessarily that he's saying you might be tempted by the same thing, but when I go and restore a brother who is in sin, and it's a sin that I would never really struggle with. It's, it's very particular to him. I may not be considering myself lest I fall into that same sin, though that should be the case as well. Take heed lest you fall. But I'm going to make sure that, that I don't have some kind of anger going into this. I, I don't jeopardize the whole process through my own Wisdom, but I yield to the wisdom of God. I've got to make sure that in the process of restoration, that I am dealing with Him in a fashion that is befitting the gospel of Christ. And if I don't, then I'm in sin too. So gentleness is going to take care of this because not only is it going to take care of restoring Him in the way that is godly, but it will lead to the restoration period. When I see you in sin, my thing, my my first thought should not be, man, I, I'm so much better than that person. Can't stand that person. They're, they're always wrong. They're always doing wrong. And, and they just can't get it like I can. That should never be our thought. We should always remember that we were in the same boat. That we've struggled, if not the, with the same sin, with sin, period. Christ died for me as well. And that brings us lower. It gives us a greater self-awareness. So our immediate thought is not to be to neglect that person and, and elevate ourselves in that regard, but it's going to be to restore that person. R.C. Trench and his synonyms for the New Testament comments on the Greek word proutes, especially in this context, saying, He that is meek will indeed know himself a sinner among sinners, and this knowledge of his own sin will teach him endure meekly the provocations with which they may provoke him, and not to withdraw himself from the burdens which their sin may impose upon them. I think that's our excuse sometimes. I shouldn't have to deal with this. He should just get it right. He should understand like I understand, like we understand. But if I really am a man of gentleness, meekness, proudness, I'm going to go to him or her in spite of what may be a challenge and may be a burden to me because I'm bearing that person's burden. Because I know that if I was in that place, I would need and want the exact same thing. So here you got the contrast with that. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. Then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. It's not really the contrast between bearing the burdens and not bearing the burdens, but it's the contrast between the attitude which leads out of love to bearing burdens and the opposite attitude. This man is not gentle. He does not express proudness in his life. He has no semblance of it. The opposite is he's puffed up. He thinks himself something. And what, what Paul is not saying is that we should always think of ourselves as nothing. 
The Apostle Paul thought of himself as something, but he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It is not wrong for us to suggest that we are righteous. That's what God's will is. And the world should know it and they should crave it and know that it's attainable because we have attained it through the grace of God. But what he's saying is that your very lack of gentleness, your very mindset that is saying, I'm not going to help my brother, I'm better than my brother, and instead of helping him, I'm exploiting his weaknesses to make myself feel better, it shows that you're really nothing. You've deluded yourself into thinking you're something, but actions speak louder than words. And so it's the pot calling the kettle black. I think I'm something, but I'm actually nothing. I'm deceiving myself. And so he's really actually nothing for one of the simple reasons that he doesn't care enough about his brother to help him in his struggles. And so in verse 4, what he does instead is he examines his brother's work and he rejoices in himself that he's not like him. That sounds like the parable of the sinner and the tax collector, and that's not Christ-like whatsoever. And so he sees a brother in sin. He's taking advantage of his plight to elevate self. That's the opposite of what we should do, brethren. And let let me say that that comes in various nuances. It's, It's not always this egregious. We need to make sure, reflect upon ourselves that we are not acting in this way. You know what? One of the things that I I would struggle with from time to time is walking that fine line between self-righteous indignation and righteous indignation. And I believe that comes when we take sin personally. For for some reason, the sin of this brother or sister in Christ, I'm taking personally. I should have righteous indignation on the Lord's behalf. I I should be filled with that kind of frustration that the law of the Lord is being undermined and that He is not being glorified in that. But that has nothing to do with me. And it has very little to do with that person. And they just need to realize what they're doing to come out of that. Maybe they don't really comprehend all the implications of their sin. But when I start taking it personally, then I bring myself into that field of thinking I'm better than that person. How dare you sin and therefore offend me? No, he's offending God. And I'm merely a tool that God is using to bring that person to salvation. we got to be careful that we're not guilty of this kind of thinking. But notice in verse 5, he says, Each one shall bear his own load. In other words, you need to understand that you are not going to stand or fall based upon that person standing or falling. His fall does not mean you're somehow elevated higher. His sin does not somehow mean that you're right with God. You will be judged by your own actions. And then you can have rejoicing in that alone, he says in verse 4. And rejoice we must and rejoice we can. When we are right with God and we, we fulfill His law, we should rejoice that we are right with Him, that we did something to glorify Him. Not in this self-exaltation and arrogance, but in a humility of being able to participate in the grace of God. But that's the key. You bear your own load. It's worthy to note that this is not a contradiction. In verse 2 he says, bear each other's burdens. In verse 5 he says, you shall bear your own load. The burdens of verse 2 is the Greek word baros, and it means an experience of something that is particularly oppressive, a burden. And so it's something that is is extra, that has come upon us in a negative fashion. But a load in verse 5 is the Greek word fortune, and it means an invoice specifically and literally, and figuratively it means a task or an obligation. And so it's like the trucker who's taking his, his load to 
the point that he is charged to take it to. He is carrying out his task or service. It's his obligation. No one can do it for him. That's the difference. And this is why Jesus in Matthew 11 and verses 29 through 30 tells us that his burden is easy. His, his yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's the Greek word portion. My, the responsibilities I place upon you, they are light. You can do them, but only you can fulfill them as opposed to verse 2 where we can have some help in bearing our burdens. And so instead of elevating ourselves in pride when we see a brother or sister caught in sin, we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and in their sight and do whatever it takes to help them to get out of that sin. That's love. And sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it's very difficult to follow through with. But it's something that every faithful Christian is called to. And I want to stress that again. We cannot wait for the preacher or the elders or the deacons to take action. Sometimes we need to let the elders know what's going on. But if we see a brother or sister sinning, you know, the first time, first thing we think sometimes is we got to go tell on them to the elders. But sometimes that can get taken care of before the elders ever even know about it. You've got to have sound judgment in reading the situation, but... Sometimes it can be taken care of so quick and and we undermine the power of the gospel if we think there's no way that I can help this person. If we just take the gospel to them, let God do the work, then that will take care of itself. But then he says in verse 6, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Now, if you're familiar at all with this text, you know that a very popular take on this is that there is a change of subject at verse 6. I wholeheartedly disagree with that, and there's good reason. I think one of the main reasons why people will go to verses 6 through 10 to talk about our use of wealth and our use of money, primarily from verse 6 in the context of supporting a preacher or teacher or an elder, is because of that Greek word translated into share. In other places of Scripture, it does have a financial connotation to it. In other places in Scripture, it's actually translated contribution, but I don't think that he switched up his discussion here in verse 6. And it actually pulls further toward us on the responsibilities in bearing burdens, but now puts it on the flip side. What should our response be to someone trying to correct us? And even in a general sense, what should our responsibility be in a setting and situation like this? How should you view me or Billy or one of the elders or just anyone else teaching you that what you're doing is wrong and you need to do differently? How should we view that if it's by the gospel? And so it speaks about the proper responses to being restored. And the proper response, namely, would be for the one who is being taught to share in what is being taught with the one who is teaching it. Where does teaching come in this context? It doesn't just start at verse 6, though it does specifically with the words, but in verse 1, restore such a one involves teaching with God's Word. But I want us to understand the good of verse 6 and who has the good and then who is going to share along with that one who has the good in it. Look at verse 9. He speaks about doing good. Contextually, it's the doing good that is involved in verse 8, which is sowing to the Spirit. And therefore, the sowing to the Spirit of verse 8, which is the doing good of verse 9, is also the doing good of verse 6, the good things of verse 6, it all has to do with the Spirit's instruction and our sowing to the Spirit. Now, sowing to the flesh would be committing the works of the flesh of chapter 5 and verse 19. 
through verse 21. Sowing to the Spirit would mean having the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 through 23, and everything else that the Gospel requires of us to do as well. And that is the very context of verse 6. And so the one who has the good things is the teacher. It's not the student. In fact, I think the New King James Version bears that out. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Not share the good things with him who teaches, but share in them with the one who teaches. And that's the very concept here. Linsky mentions in his commentary, the one who instructs has the good things. The one being instructed is to proceed to participate in them in all of them. It's like what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And in verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing them you will save both yourself and those who hear you. He is continuing in them, and when it comes out of his mouth, it is with that preface that he has bought into it and is following it himself. Now what you do as the one being taught is you believe it and participate in it with him. That's what verse 6 is telling us to do. And that's what we should do with Every aspect of teaching. Preaching is not for just mere education. It's not just entertainment. It's not entertainment at all. A lot of times it's the opposite. And it takes work to to be attentive and to think about these things and meditate on these things. You know, there's too many people who have this idea that no man should ever be able to tell me what I need to do, what I can and can't do. Well, amen. But when the preacher is preaching from God's Word, When the teacher is teaching from God's Word, it is not the man you're listening to. It is God's Word you're listening to. And that's by God's design. Brethren, if a man cannot rightly divide the Word of truth and actually give you what God wants through teaching, then how does the work of the church ever carry out? Certainly, we can be mistaken, and it's your job like the Bereans, to search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so. But if we ever hear a sermon that challenges us to drastically change our lives, and we confirm that it is by the Spirit of God, our responsibility is to drop whatever it is we need to drop and do it. Now that takes gentleness as well. A gentleness more along the lines of the context of James chapter 1. Receive the Word with meekness, and it is able to save your souls. We need to fall in line with the Spirit's teaching. I mentioned that word share. It's used in a monetary sense in Philippians 4 and verse 15, but you know what? It's spoken of in the sense of sharing one another's sins in 1 Timothy 5.22. Don't share in anyone's sins. It's used in the sense of Jesus sharing in flesh and blood, translated partaken in Hebrews 2 and verse 14. It's used in sharing in Jesus' sufferings as Christians in 1 Peter 4 and verse 13, also translated partake. And in 2 John 11, it talks about receiving the one who is not bringing the doctrine of Christ, and in doing so, you share in their evil deeds. So it is not proper exegesis. It's improper study to just see the word share and automatically think that Paul is talking about finances here. It couldn't be further from the context. He's talking about me hearing the gospel and obeying it and falling in line with it just like the one who is teaching it is. This is instruction that anyone who would be found in a trespass, would need. Here's the one who is going to restore them. Now what is the restored's responsibility? He goes on to say then, in verse 7, not to deceive yourself. What, what, what is the consequence of someone who hears, maybe it's coming from a preacher they just don't much like. You know, there, there is that. 
Some people have rejected the message of God, not because what was said was false, but because the person who said it, they just can't like very much. What do we do if we reject a message simply based on who's preaching it or teaching it? He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, and he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It doesn't matter who it comes from verbally. If it is God's will, you cannot continue working the works of the flesh and expect to ever reap everlasting life. And if you think you can do that, you are making a mockery of God. And there are several scriptures that says He's going to be the one laughing in the end. He's going to be the one standing in the end. We can't beat the system, brethren. The only way to salvation is submitting to the system of the righteousness of God, which is by faith, an obedient faith, which comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That involves everything from the greatest thoughts that we could think of in regard to to murder or adultery, all the way down to the little things like a little white lie. And the things maybe you might see as in the middle is, what do you wear day to day? Is there dress code with God? What, What is the line drawn with nakedness? So on and so forth. Maybe we'll study that at a future date. But if God's Word says it, our responsibility is not to take time to self-delusion, but meditation on God's will and buying into it and applying it to our lives. Sharing in all good things with Him who teaches. But in doing so, we need to maintain the proper perspective. Everything we're describing from restoring a brother who is in sin to being restored ourselves to being the one who teaches, to being the one who falls in line with that teaching, to just walking according to the Spirit, period, it's difficult. And it can weigh on us. So he says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. He described a tug of war in chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17. I believe we all experience that daily. The flesh and the Spirit are lusting against one another. In Galatians 5 and in verse 17, the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And why is there that constant pull back and forth? It's because the Spirit is telling you not to do this, though you are inclined to do this, and that means you shouldn't do what you want to do. You should fall in line with the Spirit. That's hard. And it comes in so many different ways. And it's a daily fight. Don't. Be discouraged. Do not lose heart. You know, sometimes we struggle when we approach a brother in sin. We, we, we fear what it's going to do to our relationship. We fear that they're not going to respond properly. And a lot of times that paralyzes us and we just don't do anything. Don't lose heart while doing good. You know, your brother is not always going to be restored. Not everyone's going to listen to the gospel. That shouldn't prevent us from going to them. Maybe a relationship will never be the same. Maybe things will just seem awkward from then on. Or or maybe they don't respond favorably to the gospel and so you lose that relationship altogether. If it means that God is glorified, do it and do not lose heart. How many times was Paul and the apostles rejected going from city to city? Too often to count. There's still a minority in the kingdom. It's not the majority of people. Do not lose heart. And then when we're convicted of sin, we're served a piece of humble pie, if you will. 
And that's good for us, brethren. You know, temptation is not from God to sin, but it's allowed by God. And it is a form of test. Are you faithful or not faithful? And when you fail that test, there's another test coming. Are you going to respond and repent? And that's hard. We need to make sacrifices and we need to make corrections. And and oftentimes we need to let everyone know that what we did was wrong and we're correcting it. And how hard can that be? Do not lose heart. He says why. For we shall reap if we do not lose heart. If we continue to sow to the Spirit, we will reap everlasting life. And so lastly, the proper perspective is to be earnest then and diligent and doing good always. If, if as long as we're doing good, and that doing good is specifically sowing to the Spirit, falling in line with the Spirit's teaching, He says we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We reap what? Verse 8, everlasting life. The therefore of verse 10 is pointing back to that truth and pointing forward to the proper response. As we have opportunity, we should do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Because doing good leads to everlasting life for ourselves, shouldn't at every opportunity we find to do good, fulfill the Spirit's teaching. Him who knows to do good and does it, he's righteous. He does not do it as a sin, is what James says in James 4 and verse 17. Every opportunity we have, shouldn't we do it if that means we reap everlasting life as we sow to the Spirit? Why do we ever squander opportunities to do what the Spirit dictates? I think it's because in the time our vision is fogged and we're not thinking properly about what this leads to. As difficult as it is, as difficult as it is to confront our brother or sister in Christ who is in sin, it will lead to eternal life on my part if I fulfill the commandment of God. But I want us to notice what he says there. He says to those who are in the world essentially, he says to everyone, let us do good to all, And that's in contrast to especially those who are of the household of faith. So certainly every time we're in contact with the world, as we have opportunity, we let Christ be displayed in us. And it may be preaching to them and teaching them the gospel, evangelizing, but it also may just be, don't be a hypocrite. There are Christians who think that it's okay to be a Christian at church, and that'll get them by, and, and they can be a completely different person at work. And that contradicts this passage. Do good to all. You're not just living righteous among those who are righteous. You're especially living righteous among those who are in the world. As Jesus described it in John 7 and verse 37 through 38, it's that fountain that is springing forth continuously. It's something we drink in and are filled with, the living waters, and and we're so overflowed with it that it, it comes out among those in the world. But notice he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We should never, ever neglect our brethren. I think we understand that physically. I'm willing to help out a stranger. I'm I'm willing to open the door for someone I never knew. But how much more so am I going to serve people who are a part of my physical family? There's going to be a difference there. And God understands that. That's how He designed it. And that's why He's using this analogy. That's why he describes Christians in this way as members of a family, of the household of faith. And so here's something I want us to be aware of. While the Great Commission stands today and is a point of great focus for each and every one of us, or should be, to evangelize and make disciples of all the nations, 
we've got to get our own house in order first. I'm not saying we can't simultaneously do things, talk to those in the world about the gospel, and improve ourselves here at this congregation and ourselves individually. But sometimes I think brethren get so enamored with growth in number, so focused on evangelizing and preaching the gospel, and they don't realize that they themselves need correction. They themselves need growth. And the design of the New Testament was not for ungodly people or people who had beams in their eyes to go out into the world and win souls to Christ. The design was the building up of the church internally, which spews forth into the world and brings lost souls to Christ. That's exactly what we see in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, when he says that he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Notice why. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What that is saying is that the design of God in the church is for this edification through those gifts, through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and the correction of things that need to be corrected. The building up of the church internally to where we are strong and mature spiritually so that each, every one of us as individuals can go out and win souls. And so if we put the cart before the horse, we're not going to see success. If anything, we're going to be bringing people in who are not true candidates for the gospel. And that's what you see in very weak churches. Winning souls to Christ means you tell that person they're still okay in their marriage, even though it's an adulterous marriage. And you come be a part of us. The church is weakened through that. What happens is we build each other up. We learn the gospel more ourselves. We grow to a spiritual maturity. We take heed to the needs of the household of faith first and foremost. And then by God's design, everything else will fall in place. You know, it's only spiritually mature and spiritually minded people who ever try to teach anyone else the gospel. So if there's a congregation full of people who just haven't bought into it themselves, they're not going to teach the gospel to their friends in the world. It's in-house, and then it expands beyond. We've got to bear each other's burdens. If we're ever to find any kind of spiritual success, we've got to be able to see the value in doing that. And we've got to see the burden of sin and temptation as the greatest out of everything. Fear this morning and have not obeyed the gospel of Christ. Part of the burden bearing that we're responsible for even this morning is to extend an invitation to you to impress you with the fact that God's long-suffering has been to this point, but you don't know how much longer it's going to be. And God has given us this time for our salvation. Whether you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins or whether you are just in sin and need to correct that, if we can assist you in any spiritual way, we urge you right now to come forward while we stand and sing the song was selected.